The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, amid freezing cold conditions, we have the latest updates on the power outages across Ukraine after massive Russian strikes. We discuss the latest US military aid package, and we look in detail at a grumpy CSTO meeting in Yerevan, Armenia, in the context of Russia's fast-declining influence in Central Asia. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Putin's war in Ukraine has destabilized energy markets the world over. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Thursday, the 24th of November, day 274. And today, I'm joined by our associate editor, Dominic Nichols, our assistant comment editor, Francis Sternley, and our foreign correspondent, James Kilner. I started by asking Dom for the latest news from Ukraine. Well, hi, David. Hi, everybody. It was a, a very uh, a very violent day yesterday in, in Ukraine as we were uh, live on air with our guest, Elena. There, was, uh, there were strikes landing as we were speaking to her in, in Kiev and across the rest of the country. Uh, left, uh, left 10 dead, numerous people, many more um, injured, disconnected three nuclear power stations, which I think are back online now. Ukraine saying 70 cruise missiles and other uh, drones were fired across across the country. It uh, took out a lot of the electricity grid. Many houses still in uh, have no power, a dark, cold. The temperature is below zero at the moment, zero Celsius. Um, and um, Ukrainian officials are still saying two-thirds of the capital is still without power this morning and no running water. Uh, so President Zelensky last night, he spoke to the UN Security Council via video link and also in his nightly address said the same, a very similar message. But to the to the UN Security Council, he said... Quote, when we have the temperature below zero and scores of millions of people without energy supplies, without heating, without water, this is an obvious crime against humanity, unquote. I mean, this is exactly the pattern we've seen recently from from Russia. They're losing on the battlefield. They're losing on the diplomatic front. It's going to be really interesting to hear from James a bit later about the CSTO meeting. They're losing economically. Their, their industry is uh, sanctions are biting in many of the areas that are critical to the war machine. So all they can do is terrorise. They were they were listed by the EU, uh, European um, Union yesterday as a state sponsor of terrorism. That's all they've got left. That's all they can do. They 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 are they are left with a with a strategy which has shown itself not to work so far and and has no no prospect of working. I don't think. Um, which is to terrorise the Ukrainian people, hoping that they will then turn to their elected representatives and President Zelensky and say, "Make it stop, make make, you know, make peace, peace, negotiate at any at any cost, just make it stop." And I can't see that happening. But I mean, this is this is not not the end of it. There's some very interesting stats out about what what we think is left in the Russian precision munition locker. Alexei Reznikov, the Ukraine's defence minister, put some stats out the other day. There's been some corroboration from um, from analysts and think tanks after that. I will dig into that and bring the bring the exact numbers in the next few days. But but I mean they are they are low and and they're not being replenished as fast as as Russia is using them. And Russia is getting very very close to that what they would view as an irreducible minimum. Um, they need to they always need to keep 
sum for this uh, this fictional future invasion by NATO. So they're getting very, very close to that line, which hitherto they've said they would not go not go below because of uh, an impending war with NATO. Um, so, yeah, so it's very tricky and this is all they can do. Uh, elsewhere, I should just mention there's two other bits and pieces I want to talk about. But firstly, um, yesterday there was another $400 million um, in a military assistance package uh, signed off by the U.S., um, and so this is the, the latest of, I think, 26 that they've done, the U.S. Um, it's worth going and having a look at the U.S. Uh, DOD, Department of Defense website, for the for the full list of everything that's been supplied so far. I mean, I just there's simply not time here to list everything that has been sent from, from the U.S. alone. It is quite um, it's quite impressive. More to do, but, but very impressive. But the package last night included additional munitions for NASAMS. That's the National Advanced Surface-to-Air Missile System, the very... Um, the very modern, very capable uh, air defence system, 150 heavy machine guns with thermal imagery. These things are important uh, to counter the drone threat, particularly these Iranian Shahid-136 drones. They are low, low, slow and noisy, so you can see them, but it's just having the ability to shoot them down and it's just not cost-effective to use a you know, $100,000 missile against a $20,000 drone. So the the impetus in the last few weeks has been getting heavy machine guns that can just chuck a load of lead into the sky very, very quickly. So an extra 150 of those from, from the US. Uh, additional ammunition for HIMARS, the high-mobility artillery rocket systems, the very precise, very long-range artillery system. 200 precision-guided 155mm artillery rounds. So we think these are the Excalibur rounds. These are 155mm artillery shells that can um, steer in flight. Another 10,000 120mm mortars, uh, HARM, so the high-speed anti-radiation missiles. So these missiles will uh, pick up any radiated energy from from a um, from a, a radar. So uh, if you want to launch an airstrike, you need to get rid of the enemy's enemy's radar that's looking for you and, and that can then maybe send a missile or or an intercept fighter against you. So if you've got these radiation missile missiles that, that home in on radiation and this is radiated electromagnetic energy it's not the radiation from a nuclear strike for example um, but yeah these missiles are are exactly what you need to then knock out those radars such that your package your air package can get through and go and do whatever it wants um, back to the list 150 uh, humvees high mobility multi-purpose wheel wheeled vehicles these are the, the big the big jeeps. I know they're not a jeep. Don't don't have a go at me. But these are the you know, the big things that we see the US. They've had for for years. Been up, upgraded. They are they are very capable. Over another hundred hundred light tactical vehicles. Tw- uh, sorry, two ugh, bloody hell. So many zeros. Twenty million rounds of small arms ammunition. Two hundred generators. Critical when there's no power in uh, across the country. Spare parts for the one hundred five mil howitzers. Um, and other equipment. So in total, the US has committed more than $19 billion since February the 24th this year and almost $22 billion since 2014. But I do suggest you, like I say, go and have a look at the DoD website for the full list of gifted equipment. Um, it's also worth looking at, at what countries have provided as a proportion of their GDP. Um, it's good that people, everyone's leaning in on this, or not everyone, but, you know, enough Hopefully enough people are lean, leaning in. Interesting to see what, what portion of GDP. And it's it's um, it's kind of Baltic states, Latvia, Lithuania, who, who are as a proportion of their GDP, um, arguably doing the most. Now, OK, the US is way, way, way out in front. I mean, in terms of donating, donated equipment, um, 
uh, you know, after the US, it's only Russia that have, don- that have come close to donating more more stuff. But it's still very important to, to see that even the smaller countries are, are doing what they can to a, to a very large degree. I've got something else to talk about Poland and the missile strike a couple of weeks ago, but I'll just take a little pause for breath there. Thanks very much for that, Dom. Francis Stanley, can I come to you? Dom's just been talking about the... Uh, the, the assistant package, the $400 million, assistant, uh, $400 million assistant package from the US. Uh, you've been looking at the EU and the latest round of sanctions. Uh, what can you tell us about them? Yes, well, thank you, David, and good afternoon, everyone. Off the back, as you say, of what Don was saying there, I think it's just worth emphasising that there's still numerous conversations taking place within Europe about the next round of support that's going to be given to Ukraine. And indeed, in that vein, as you say, the EU is pressing ahead with a ninth sanctions package on Russia in response to Moscow's attack on Ukraine. That's according to European Commission Chief Ursula von der Leyen. And I'll quote from her directly. We are working hard to hit Russia where it hurts, to blunt even further its capacity to wage war on Ukraine. And I can announce today that we are working full speed on a ninth sanctions package. I'm confident that we will very soon approve a global price cap on Russian oil with the G7 and other major partners. We will not rest until Ukraine has prevailed over Putin and his unlawful and barbaric war. Now, just a remark on this global price cap. There's numerous debates going on within Europe at the moment about exactly what that is going to look like. Some countries have been complaining about the nature of the cap. They're saying it's not feasible, that it wouldn't actually be able to be uh, logistically done because it wouldn't be clear what the restrictions would be and how it would work. And of course, all of the countries concerned as well are worried that an excessive cap will have a detrimental impact on their own citizen population and what could be a very challenging winter. So I just mentioned that because that's a, a flavour of some of the discussions that are going on at the moment. Whilst we're just talking about the European Union, I want to also speak about Hungary. So it's been a very interesting intervention today. Hungary have said that it will provide 187 million euros, that's about 161 million pounds in financial aid to Ukraine as its contribution to a planned EU support package, which of course, as we've spoken about in the past, is worth up to 18 billion euros in 2023. Now, why is this significant, the contribution of, of, of Hungary? Well, For a start, of course, Hungary has been one of the most critical countries with regard to the stance that's been adopted by the EU. It's much more closely aligned with uh, Russia's view on all sorts of uh, issues. Viktor Orban, of course, some people say behaves almost as if he were a dictator himself. And uh, there's all sorts of um, criticisms that have been made on the Hungary stance on the EU. So much so uh, that uh, on this question of, of energy and, and everything else, there were concerns that, the, that, that Hungary would not actually be willing to support some of the further sanctions that are being introduced and some that have already formally been introduced by the EU because, of course, Hungary, as being a member of the European Union, is expected to contribute to these these packages. The fact they have done so, I think, is important for, at the first hand, just, you know, acknowledging the fact that they clearly are are feeling that that they have no choice but to support this, that enough pressure has been put on them within the context of the EU. But I also think it needs to be contextualised in this decision that we're expecting from the EU in the coming weeks about funding for Hungary itself from within the European Union, which are currently being withheld due to rule of law concerns. I won't get into all the complexities of this, but basically Hungary has failed to adopt certain promised rule of law reforms in order to abide by the rules within 
within the European Union. And the fact that they have rejected doing so up until now has been a big cause of, of anger. And indeed, there are certain members of the European Union bloc that are so critical of Viktor Orban and Hungary's stance on this that they wish to deprive Hungary of certain EU funding. And this is rumbling on in the background. And so I think we should see the fact that Hungary has been willing to say that it's willing to contribute this as significant, perhaps less so in terms of, you know, it's, it's been one round to Ukraine, which is what some commentators are, are saying this morning. And it should be more seen in terms of real politique, which is they're worried they're going to lose EU funding. And as a consequence, they are making it clear that they're still going to contribute to, to the EU on the Ukraine issue, perhaps to try and win some favour. So just a little bit of complicated diplomatic stuff going back and forth. But uh, I think still important to mention uh, at this moment of the war. Thanks, Francis. Just staying with you very quickly. I I know you wanted to talk briefly about uh, Zaporizhia. Well, yes, because I've been talking about it a lot this week, I thought it was only right to mention it very briefly again. And I know there'll be another update later. I'd like to talk a little bit more about war crimes after we've spoken to James. But uh, yes, uh, so the Russian Deputy Foreign Minister has said, following the meeting that I mentioned yesterday with the UN nuclear watchdog and uh, Russian uh, ministers about concerns around Zaporizhia, he has said that these conversations were constructive, that's his words, and showed some promise. So... The fact that these conversations are ongoing, we don't know the nature of them. It's happening in a delegation in Istanbul, as I say, between the Russian delegation and uh, and the UN nuclear watchdog, uh, the International Atomic Energy Agency. And as I say, the priority is trying to secure safety at the plant to make sure there isn't some sort of incident there. Of course, uh, the Ukrainians have claimed that the Russians are launching strikes and attacks and all sorts of dangerous things around Zaporizhia. The Russians are claiming that it's the Ukrainians that are attacking the site. But I think the fact that they are having this discussion with the Russians means that they are more concerned, the UN, uh, about what Russia might do around Zaporizhia for all the reasons that I've talked about at length in recent weeks and and that Hamish Bretton Gordon has spoken about on this podcast, that it may be something where if worse comes to the worst in this war, that Russia, if they control that plant, can trigger some kind of dirty bomb or or perhaps not, if not that quite severe, can, can conjure some sort of incident that would mean that there would need to be a pause in hostilities and that would perhaps put international pressure on Ukraine to agree to some sort of ceasefire whilst the radiation was suppressed. So, as I say, a very small story, one could argue, but an important development, I think, on an issue that we're right to be monitoring. Thank you very much, uh, Francis. Dom, can I just come back to you for one more thing before we bring in James? And thank you so much, James, for for listening uh, so patiently. Um, Dom, you've had one of your chats with a quote-unquote Western official about uh, Poland and Germany and Patriot missile launches. Can you tell us what uh, conversation you had? Yeah, sure. Uh, So this was... Uh, Francis just left us in Hungary, so so let's leap out of there, head a little bit north, and let's look at Poland. So discussion this morning with a Western official about um, implications for the war uh, in Poland, which actually is is timely. Um, remember last week, so November the 15th, last uh, Tuesday, Tuesday last week, um, Monday last week, whenever it was, November the 15th, there was the, the, the missile strike, the blast in Poland, just over the border from Ukraine, um, which we're still not entirely sure what it was. It's looking as if it was a Ukrainian air defence missile that landed, um, that was launched in response to the heaviest day of bombardment um, since, uh, since February the 24th. Um, so that was the context. Now, after that, 
Germany offered to send Patriot missile launchers to Poland to to uh, to help along the border. And last night, Marius Blaschacz, the Polish defence minister, has said uh, is urged Germany not to send the the Patriots to Poland, but to keep keep shoving them east, send them to Ukraine. Um, so the the Polish defence minister back, uh, has come out with that statement last night, and he said. After further missile attacks by Russia, I asked the German side to pass the Patriot batteries that it had offered to Poland to Ukraine instead and deploy them on their western border. I said that on Twitter. So that was that was last night. Um, and then this morning I had a, had a chat with uh, a Western official um, and Poland sort of featured featured heavily. So, there, I mean, there's there's some. I'll give you some general stuff about what's what's happening, what the view is of the Western official about Poland, but but specifically about this missile. Um, The official said there's a huge risk of an incident like this happening again, so that there is is great, great concern. Um, And said that the... It was always recognised this risk the missile of a missile strike in Poland spilling out from Ukraine. It was always going to be low likelihood but high impact, um, and that very, very quickly after that uh, after that blast last week... Uh, Polish authorities pulled the U.S. straight into the investigation, uh, and by early the next morning, they had, they had already uh, so within 12 hours had uh, got Ukraine in, told Ukraine that they needed to be uh, invited in. I, you know, I don't know about the political diplomatic niceties of it, but they, you know, they, this suggestion there was some chat in the first few hours after that, that that Poland was trying to keep Ukraine out of it. I mean, it doesn't seem to be the case at all. There was obviously great concern at the time. Um, and it took a little while for um, for li- national leaders to get on top of this. If you don't, if you remember the the um, the G20 summit was going on in Bali at the time, so we had something happening overnight in in Europe, which obviously the US have an in- interest in, and and Biden was out uh, east in the G20, so a load of other leaders. So it all took a little while to settle down, but it looks as if it was all to do with comms and timings rather than any any sort of diplomatic difficulty. Um, it was recognised though the Polish. Uh, authorities have said that they, they recognise that if this incident had been badly handled, and they do think something similar is going to happen again. Um, so imagine the, yeah, the the post-action review going on here, um, lessons identified and all the rest of it. Um, they recognise that if it was badly handled, it could easily be, it could easily escalate. It's one of those situations that could very, very rapidly get out of control. Um, but the uh, the Western official I was speaking to said that the Polish defence minister's comments last night is consistent with the with the recent Polish narrative that Germany is not leaning in enough, which I thought was quite quite strong, quite strong language. Um, that's the opinion of the Western official on on the record, albeit unnamed. But uh, yeah, I thought that was fairly strong, saying it was uh, that, that Poland are of the opinion Germany needs to be doing more. And um, I mean, we've talked about this for for a long time, but to have it have it sort of spe- stated in, dip- in by a diplomat was quite uh, quite interesting. Um, elsewhere, other other bits and pieces uh, about Poland. So, from the Western official, refugee movements at the moment from Ukraine into Poland are not high. There, there's been no massive uptick in recent weeks. There's just under one and a half million refugees registered in Poland, ninety-seven percent of whom are women. Many of those women ha- are accompanied with children. There's about two hundred thousand Ukrainian children in Polish schools, and a huge number of uh, Ukrainian women uh, who have come across the border are in the workforce, have entered the workplace in in Poland. Most are living in private accommodation. That's the um, as in the generosity of, of the Polish people. Um, however, this this winter there is an estimate of half between half and one and a half million 
extra refugees if the winter is is as bitter and the and the power situation is as as expected. So, so they are expecting um, another wave in Poland. Although at the moment it it seems entirely manageable. Now, we have spoken in the past about how Belarus has tried to weaponize the migrant issue. There's a new fence now on the border between Poland and Belarus, which has reduced the number of migrants significantly. The number of migrants crossing there um, is slightly this on a slight uptick. There were a thousand across that border in September, two thousand in October, and there's always the threat of an increase from Kaliningrad, which is why there is now um, a border. Uh, sorry, a fence being being built there between Poland and uh, and Kaliningrad. Um, and in the words of the Western official, they are worried there will be hybrid activity to destabilise Europe, unquote, through through the migration issue. Um, but I thought it was it was very, uh, very, very, very interesting, very telling. Other quotes from the Western official: Poland is carrying security for the whole of NATO at the moment, uh, and Poland, if you include the the support to Ukraine, is reaching over the three percent of GDP on defence at the moment. So I just thought. I mean, we spoke about Poland earlier on this week. There was that really interesting article in Politico about how um, Poland is increasing in importance in the uh, European security architecture. So I just thought it was, it was quite interesting to have a have a bit of a dive a dive in there. But on the back of the news that that Poland has asked Germany to send the Patriot missile batteries direct to Ukraine and not not in not to you know, for I mean. Poland's in NATO, right? So there, there is already an air defence umbrella along there. So great that Germany could offer these things, but you know, let's let's just keep them going east, lads. Push them over the border, um, and that will be very interesting to see what uh, how Germany react to that. Thanks. Thank you very much uh, for that, Tom James Kilner, our foreign correspondent. Can we come to you? I know you wanted to add a few thoughts on this morning's news from Ukraine, um, and then I would love to hear some of your thoughts on the recent CSTO meeting and also the Kazakhstan election. Sure. Okay. Um, it's been a busy morning already, um, as it normally is on the Moscow desk. Um, on this, um, on 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 the, one of the main stories of the week and the last few weeks, this energy crisis in Ukraine, um, triggered by these uh, missile attacks from Russia, deliberate policy to freeze Ukrainians as they go into their winter. Um, there was news from Kiev this morning um, from Ukrainian officials saying that 70% of the city was without power, which is a huge, huge amount, big city like that. And that follows a message from the World Health Organization a few days ago, which said that millions of people were at risk um, in Ukraine uh, because they didn't have power this coming winter. So the, the sort of the enormity of that problem is really coming through. I think Zelensky said a few days ago that um, Ukraine was setting up these so-called invincibility points around cities. And these are sort of places where people can charge a mobile phone, get a hot food, uh, warm up a bit, et cetera, et cetera. But these are tiny, you know, there's there's sort of maybe a few dozen in, of, of these places in, in the bigger cities. So uh, they the the prospects in Ukraine are looking are looking really really unfortunate, and it's, it's going to be a terribly long winter. It's um it's it's re- it's a really sad sort of outlook there. Um, on other news, we've had um Don Dom's been talking about Don France has been talking about the European Parliament describing Russia as sponsored terrorist state yesterday. This morning, uh, news came through that uh, the Wagner Group, the Kremlin link mercenary group have sent European Parliament a sledgehammer, bloodied sledgehammer 
engraved with their logo on, on the head of this sledgehammer as a so-called piece of evidence, piece of information for the European Parliament to consider. Uh, they've also said that they are that they are thinking about branding Wagner Group a terrorist group. And so here's Wagner poking fun at the European uh, Parliament in a very sort of... Uh, frankly disgusting way, um, the sledgehammers become an unofficial logo for Wagner. They've used sledgehammers to kill people in Middle East and they videoed themselves killing um, a deserter with a sledgehammer uh, uh, last week, I think it was. So uh, this, uh, you know, the the, the distastefulness of of, of Wagner group continues to shock and um, its financer and boss, um, Prigorjan, who we talk about a fair amount on this channel, was commenting on it. Um, moving on to the CSTO, uh, which is the, the Kremlin-led Collective Security Treaty Organization, a, a security group of, um, of uh, ex-Soviet states formed 20, roughly 20 years ago and is led by the Kremlin. They had a meeting in Yerevan um, yesterday, which uh, Putin flew down flew down for. It was his first time out of Moscow for about a month. He was in Central Asia a month ago where he got harangued very memorably by the Tajik president. So he flew down to this um, conference, uh, this summit rather, down in Yerevan. And it's, it, it's controversial because the CSTO is deployed only once in its 20-year history, and that was in January to Kazakhstan um, at the behest of the Kazakhs to prop up uh, the regime there when they're facing a near-revolutionary uh, uprising. Um, and as we now know, that uprising, that, that near-revolution, happened about five or six weeks before uh, Russia invaded Ukraine. Obviously, the Kremlin knew about its plans to invade Ukraine. The rest of us were just guessing, but 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 with the context, with the hindsight, it, it does appear that Putin ordered Putin the Kremlin very much control what happens in the CSTA. Uh, they ordered this intervention in Kazakhstan, the first first ever intervention by the CSTA, um, to stop this revolution because the Kremlin and Putin didn't want a revolution going on in Kazakhstan as it was invading Ukraine. So. You've got a bit of context there. In the meantime, Armenia happens to be the uh, rotating presidency of, of, of this group. And it's been having some problems, as it generally has over the last uh, two decades, um, with Azerbaijan on its border. In September, uh, there was some attacks, which most um, uh, observers believe was triggered by Azerbaijan. About 300 soldiers were killed, so these were pretty serious attacks. Um, and they follow up um, a war two years ago over disputed territory of Nagorno-Karabakh. Um, and Armenia is furious with the Kremlin, absolutely furious, because there are 2,000 Russian soldiers based along the border of Azerbaijan and Armenia who are meant to be keeping the peace after the war two years ago. Now, a distracted Kremlin wasn't able to do anything to, to stop this. Um, distracted by by Ukraine, et cetera, et cetera. And we had a very frosty, very awkward meeting between uh, the Armenian Prime Minister Pashinyan and um, Putin yesterday. Pashinyan obviously adhered to all the 
correct protocol, diplomatic protocol, greeted Putin nicely when he came off the plane, etc. cetera, uh, had the handshakes, and they all sat down and had this big sort of meeting with the other leaders uh, of, of member states, um, the Kazakhs, Tajiks, and Belarusians. Um uh, and 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 they got and they got on with it, but the body language was grumpy, really grumpy. And the news reports coming from um, the meeting suggest that Pashinyan refused to sign a document that Putin wanted him to sign. Um, and although Putin said he's called for a strengthened CSTO, uh, that that is not the case. Um, it just shows exactly how dysfunctional. Kremlin's come in this sort of security, uh, sort of near abroad that it had previously always dominated and now can't project its influence and strength over uh, sort of previous vassal states, if if, if you like, especially Armenia. Um, now, a really interesting side here is that when Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives, visited Yerevan in September, becoming the highest-ranked U.S. politician to ever visit independent Armenia. Um, she was greeted by cheering crowds um, all along uh, the side of the road from the airport to the centre of uh, Yerevan, which is several miles. Um, when Putin arrived yesterday, there was a very tepid... Um, sort of look, look fairly well organised by authorities, um, pro Kremlin, uh, you know, rally uh, at, at one corner of this huge, huge drive into the city. Previously, the night before, there had been plenty of anti-Russia, pro-Ukraine, anti-Kremlin, anti-Putin um, rallies. This is a complete sort of turnaround from what you would normally expect to see in in Armenia, which is a generally pro-Russia, uh, has been traditionally a pro-Russia country because of its, um, its geographic position surrounded by enemies, Turkey and Azerbaijan. Francis, you have a question for James. I do, and I completely agree with your point, David, that I think the CSTO has been underreported, and it's really interesting hearing James's insights on, on a forgotten area, really. And actually, that's what my question relates to, which is, James, how fatal do you think that the war in Ukraine and this sort of declining Russian influence that you've talked about in the region is, is you know, do you think this is something that is really going to have a very, very long-term ramifications for how Russia is seen in these states? Or do you see it more as a... Uh, as a temporary setback that can be you know quite quickly recovered if the war in ukraine were to end or if putin were to leave office for instance um yeah great question i i i really think this is a um this this is going to be a great problem for for russia for many years to come it, it, might, it might be the actual severing or, or the beginning of the severance between russia and, and its former uh, Soviet satellite states. It can't happen immediately. The people in power in um, the South Caucasus and Central Asia, they were born and educated under the Soviet system and they have very strong personal links to Moscow, etc. And, and often their first language is Russian. But the generation below that is already becoming increasingly lukewarm uh, about the Kremlin and the, and the generation below that is is um is uh you know moving away altogether there's been a real surge in interest in learning um national languages for example um kazakh in uh, kazakhstan was really a secondary language until a few years ago when it became more on trend 
um, for middle-class Kazakhs who would normally have spoken Russian, especially in somewhere like Central Almaty, to start learning Kazakh. And the uh, the Kremlin's invasion of Ukraine has sped that up. Um, I was speaking to uh, some young Kazakhs um, on, on social media, etc., and the, on the phone this week, and... You can hear their excitement when they start to talk about learning Kazakh, and it's and it's 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 a deliberate ploy to differentiate themselves from Russia, from their Soviet past. Um, uh, Russia still has huge uh, cultural and linguistic and political links, and 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 security links as well. Certainly, all these security services are linked into the Russian. Um, and that is very difficult for um, a country like China, which has made huge inroads to penetrate. But China's got the big bucks. China has not rocked the boat um, like the Kremlin has. The Kremlin is not freaking out. Uh, sorry, China is not freaking out uh, Central Asians in the way that the Kremlin is. Only this week on um, on these uh, very poisonous Russian propaganda broadcasts, there was a, a panel which was saying, literally saying, Kazakhstan's next. There's there's Nazism going on in Kazakhstan. We should take out Kazakhstan now. We've seen this before, and we've we've ridden out this this sort of uh, problem before from these uh, propagandists. But is can is Russia a trustworthy partner? Can it be trusted going forward? There's so many doubts now. Thank you. If I could just come back on that, it's so interesting hearing your insights on this. What would be the process, if we're thinking in the long term, of that disintegration, if it were to occur, of these former Soviet states leaving the orbit of Russia? I know you've spoken in the past about quite how many, the way of articulating it is this, is the sort of Russian tentacles are in these states, whether it be with regard to control over energy, with regard to oligarchic power, for instance. What do you think that process would be? Would it be coming through democratic channels would this be something where there would be sort of referenda or is this something where it would have to be done through violent means do you think that's my first question i have a follow-up but i'll let you answer that one first um yeah i i i I don't see any recourse to a violent shift away from russian uh, hard power or business power over these countries you know uh, these so-called color revolutions um most famously successful in Georgia and to some extent Ukraine. Um they have been unsuccessful in, in Central Asia. That's just it, it, the security services, the Russian influence of the security services and their patronage, etc., is just too hard. That is not gonna happen. But I think the um the business links are already damaged um because of this war in Ukraine. Um, the Central Asian states and the South Caucasus are under huge pressure from the US not to help Russia and its businesses skip around sanctions. There was a Russian, um, uh, an Armenian company sanctioned by uh, the US this week because it was acting as a front for a, um, a Russian microchip company, which is suspected of being involved in the Russian um, weapons industry. So, um, And we, we've seen the, the banks in Central Asia all scrap using Russia's mid um, international payment transfer system. And they've made it also increasingly hard for Russians who are still able to hop on a plane and fly to Central Asia. They made it increasingly hard for them to set up um, bank accounts, etc. So I think I think those business links are already beginning to be diminished. 
I think Armenia is an incredibly interesting case, whereas previously it would have looked to Russia to impose some sort of peace deal um, on the South Caucasus and, and Azerbaijan. Uh, Russia just doesn't seem able to, to do this. The Kremlin doesn't seem interested or, you know, care enough to do it. And instead it is looking to the US um, and to Europe to negotiate. And, and this is happening. The foreign ministers of Azerbaijan and Armenia were, were, were in Washington uh, last week talking about this um, with Blinken. And it, it's, it's, it's an incredible sight to see the US really taking a lead on this and the, the Kremlin being sidelined. So I think these high-level bilateral shifts will happen uh, slowly. The business ties um, will weaken, be, uh, partly because of the sanctions that Russia's brought on itself. Um, and linguistically and culturally, it is deeply unfashionable um, to have anything to do with Russia at the moment. One really small anecdote, uh, there's, a, there, there's a, a great chocolate company in, in Kazakhstan and um, uh, this week they released a video uh, which which pokes fun at Russia, which is a remarkable thing. It's this video of this poor um, Russian guy who's clearly dodging mobilisation in Russia and he's trekked over the mountains. He's got his wheelie bag with him. He looks exhausted. He's clearly Russian and, he, and he's all ruffled. Um, and he's in the middle of nowhere. And then this Kazakh horseman comes over, rides over to him and hands him a chocolate bar. And the chocolate bar's got the um, picture of the Kazakh flag on. And uh, the Russian goes, what was this? And the uh, the Kazakh guy just goes, uh, the Kazakh horseman just goes, this is the taste of freedom. So, you know, even the branding and the, and the mockery is it's really coming through now. It's very interesting. Thanks, James. And just my final question, if I may, which is, how much do you think Russia is actually aware of this declining influence? You know, are they in denial or do you think that perhaps part of this strategy of brokering more with African states and peddling those kind of anti-colonialist narratives about the West in those countries is part of them accepting that their influence in these places is on the decline and looking for other places to, to steer their influence? Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I think, um, the Kremlin's, court, the Kremlin's courtship of Africa um, and some Middle Eastern countries, you know, through the Grain Deal and through uh, Putin hating various leaders in Sochi, etc., is part of the realization that they they have lost their way in in Central and South Caucasus. It's not totally over in these regions for them, but at all, of course not. Um, they they still are able to you know impose a lot of hard power, but I think the influence. Um, has waned, and the, my Russian businessmen friends who are still in Russia, um, uh, you know, they they are beginning to get really pissed off um, that they can't do business properly with the West. Uh, there, there had been there had been a, very much been a sort of uh, expectation anticipation that they would be able to do the business with the West through Central Asia through the South Caucasus, but that just hasn't come to pass. Um, and I think that is uh, a shift which we've seen in the last few months. And I think that is 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 very important to keep in mind. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's uh, think the shift is happening and it's happening through businesses and through people not being able to, uh, to get what they want done and, and through this mobilisation which has forced hundreds of thousands of young Russians into somewhere like Kazakhstan um, and, and the South Caucasus. 
Well, this is absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much, James, and thanks, Francis, for your question. I would just say very quickly, James, what you were saying about young Kazakhs learning the Kazakh language, which previously sort of was the second language, and now there's a a cultural um, vibe for it being popular and brands are sort of using it. Um, I mean, that obviously mirrors what we're hearing from lots of Ukrainians about learning Ukrainian maybe for the first time, or certainly um, Ukrainians who, who, who grew up with their with their language seen as the sort of the, the, the lesser language compared to Russian now actually claiming it and owning it. And that that incredibly interesting kind of cultural revolution that that's occurring there. And I, I'm very, very interested in the in this fact that you said that this is also happening. In, in Kazakhstan, so I would just say to our listeners, if if you're if you're listening from um, Central Asian states or, or or the region in general, and this is something you're seeing in in your country as well, please do get in touch because it feels as if we, we're seeing it. We we know we're seeing it in Ukraine. We, we've we've heard a lot of people we, we've talked to have said that. We're now hearing Kazakhstan. It's it's a thing. People are learning Kazakh, and it's seen as a, a popular thing. You know, as James has explained, if you're from somewhere in the region around that or from Kazakhstan, please do get in touch. It's something I think we'd love to be able to join the dots on this. See, this is a, if this is a phenomenon that's crossing other countries as well amongst uh, young people and maybe not young people as well so please do get in touch if that's something you're seeing um james um thank you so much for all of that that was absolutely fascinating you you've been on the moscow desk you've been looking at russia this weekend and this week um could you just give us um got many notes in front of me from you just your sense of what's happening in in the country at the moment what's what is the mood Right. So this is the sort of this is one of the great challenges. This is the great challenge, I'd say, at the moment is trying to discern what exactly is going on in Russia. It's incredibly important uh, to keep trying to report the Russia voice. Um, I, you know, it's, we, we've got lots of journalists. We've had lots of journalists in uh, Ukraine and the information flows obviously a lot easier from Ukraine, from Russia. We, we don't have any journalists there at the moment. It's considered too dangerous. And uh, the inf- information flow is a lot weaker. But um, you can speak to people and you can monitor Russian telegram, et cetera, et cetera, and, and get a sense of what's going on from uh, Russian opposition um, groups. I think, and, and this was also going to be my final thought ahead of um, uh, you know how, how we normally sign off. Tomorrow, Putin is meeting, um, well, the Kremlin is like flagging up this meeting with mothers of mobilized men. Now, this is this is a this is a huge departure for the Kremlin and Putin on a personal level. It's anything he's done previously in this war, really. He's very much tried to stay above the fray and and, and above uh, and and basically out of the way of ordinary people and 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 how they're feeling, etc. Um, and here we have him. Uh, meeting a group of mothers now now, now uh, you know that in itself is going to be very very interesting to watch and and see the dynamics i think he's invited them to the kremlin so there's that that dynamic as well um but we've already had criticism coming out of this meeting from other mothers and wives of mobilized men who are basically saying that this meeting is whitewashing uh putin and the kremlin and and trying to kick the problem of uh, frustrations over how disorganised and awful the, the, the Kremlin's first mobilisation since 1941 has been, um, and that uh, the, the Kremlin and its propagandists are using this meeting, and, and, and I suspect they're going to be right, but obviously we've got to, we've, we've got to watch, watch out for it tomorrow, to um, pretend and to, and to try and show Putin as being this caring, interested leader, which... All the evidence suggests he, he's absolutely not. He, he's the opposite. Um, so that, that that is very interesting. And and I've been talking to various women 
uh, on social media in, in, in Russia and mainly in Moscow and St. Petersburg over the last few weeks. Now, uh, mobilisation was ordered by Putin in mid or just after mid-September. And it was clear within a week or 10 days or so that it was just disorganised, awful, and, and 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 men were getting sent to the front line without proper training, et cetera, et cetera, without proper equipment. And then the bodies started coming back into, into St. Petersburg, Moscow, and, and, and the, the rest of Russia. And this is what really made people were angry, especially the women. Um, and the more you speak to them, you can feel this resentment, this this annoyance coming up. Now, women in, in, in Russia are very important. They're, they're, they're a very strong group. A, they don't get sent to fight the war. They're the ones um, still in, in the cities caring and thinking about, thinking about the men and trying to, trying to keep um, uh, society running. B, they're, they're seen as more... Uh, as having sort of more in- integrity and 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 more sort of uh, more more wisdom in in some way, and and we we saw them be a very powerful group in the nineteen eighties when uh, the Soviet Union was fighting its war in Afghanistan. Um, it was the women, the wives and mothers of of soldiers who were really able to um, play. Uh, a sizable role, I'd say, in in making Gorbachev and uh, the um, uh, the the Kremlin then withdraw from Afghanistan, and and historians will debate the impact of that withdrawal in 1989. But some will say that that really triggered the end of the Soviet Union two years later. So 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 the emergence of women. I, I don't want to over overstate it at the moment, but but I think that this is is really important. It's been building for some weeks, and uh, I've been talking to them, and and you can just sense a shift in mood with mobilisation from these women. Um, elsewhere, really quickly, um, there's a very sad story out this morning from uh, Mahachkala in Dagestan, which is one of the sort of fringe uh, Russia states in the Caspian Sea in the South Caucasus, in the North Caucasus, uh, beg your pardon. And it's, 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 a, it's a big, po- populous um, place, and, and, and they've had a lot of, they've sent a lot of uh, people down to, uh, the Russian army is heavily mobilised from there, and has angered a lot of mothers. But, but this story is really about um, LGBT rights and laws in Russia. Now, last month, Russia toughened its LGBT laws, um, and it basically—I mean, they 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 decriminalised homosexuality in the 1990s. But they, since Putin come to power, they, they've made it. Um, they, they've stigmatised it basically, and, they, and they've done this deliberately to try and draw a fissure between the what they say is the weak, weak-willed uh, West and the the purity of the Slavic uh, world, etc. And and this war, they you know they've really gone to town on it, and, and they toughened the laws again uh, last month so that if if you're if you're now accused of uh, promoting homosexuality, etc., is is similar to inciting violence or racial hatred, is that level of severity. Um, uh, there was a play cancelled in Novosibirsk um, over the weekend because um, 
it was a pantomime um, and and the fairy was played by a man with a moustache and someone informed it, the, the, the cultural ministry got involved and they banned it. Now, Mahajkala today, a really sad story, these young guys opened, um, they, they had a fashion shoot in a, in a boutique in Mahajkala. It's, it's, it's not a particularly wealthy place, Mahajkala by any stretch and, and so this would have been a big deal. It was videoed and two of the models were, were videoed and they had a tiny bit of mascara on and um, this irritated, uh, you know, the, the hardcore nationalist crowd. Um, they complained to the cultural ministry again. Uh, they got lots of death threats. Now the boutiques had to close and um, this whole fashion sheet has collapsed in disaster. They may also get charged with um, promoting uh, homosexuality, which comes with prison sentences these days. That is the Russia of today. I've got more to say, but uh, I think I've, I've been speaking for long enough. James, it's absolutely fascinating, and thank you for taking a look inside. As you said, it's 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 often very difficult to to, to get um, to read the the emotional sense and see, see what's going on. So, thank you for for your reporting, um, Dom. I know you had one question, and we're just starting to run out of time together. So, James, are you all right if Dom asks one question, and then maybe we, maybe you, um, James, in your final thoughts, you sort of sum up some of the other notes. I see I see you've got that because they are very interesting. And I think we should know them. Yeah, sure. Just uh, far away. Brilliant, Dom Nichols. Thanks, James. Lovely to speak to you again. Uh, just a, a quickie. I mean, does Russia need Armenia? Or oh, no, no, sorry, the other way around. Does Armenia need to stay in the CSTO? It's got no land border with Russia. So, so the big, the big hold over these countries are. Well, I'm going to come and hit you with a big stick if you don't do what I say. That's been shown to be a load of rubbish. The genie's out the bottle. Russian influence is waning in the in the region. So, what is what is holding Armenia in the CSTO? Thanks. I don't think these Soviet clubs, which were set up uh, in the early 90s, mid-90s, with the Kremlin at power, I don't think you can... I don't think a member state can just drop out. I mean, if it did drop out, it would collapse the whole thing and, and the Kremlin would, you know, lose its mind over it and it would it would be an incredible story. Um, but, but also, there are still 2,000 Russian soldiers, um, peacekeeping soldiers, sorry, um, in um, Armenia... Um, the consequence of this uh, peace deal that the Kremlin imposed two years ago. And also the Kremlin has one of its biggest military bases um, aside from the uh, 2,000 peacekeepers um, in our, in Armenia, in, in Gyumri, um, at, just outside Gyumri. You can go and, you know, walk around the perimeter if you, if you fancy it. Um, and... Uh, so I, I don't think it's as simple as, as just flouncing out. And I think Armenia would really like, would really appreciate the Kremlin um, playing a, a, a stronger role in, in imposing peace with uh, in the South Caucasus and, and stopping uh, Azerbaijani aggression. The Kremlin is just distracted um, and, and doesn't want to use the CSTA to do anything other than prop up its uh, Kazakh mates when, when, when they look like they're under real revolutionary pressure. Um, and Turkey, as, as we know, has, has really um, become a power player in the South Caucasus over the last few years, and especially since the war in, war in Ukraine. And it is backing Azerbaijan 100%. And the Kremlin is very wary of, wary of that. So... I, th- I think I don't think Armenia has any intention of of, of leaving the CST. I don't I don't think it's really possible. Um, I think and I think it genuinely would like more Kremlin interest and and in, in intervention in in the region, but just hasn't hasn't been able to get it. And I think that frustration was on show yesterday with Pashinyan refusing to sign this document. Um, and yeah, we have to wait and see. But the CSTO. 
has shown itself to be, other than this rather odd and peculiar intervention in January in Kazakhstan, um, a toothless tiger. So yeah, let's let's see what happens there. Um, very quickly, final thoughts. Tomorrow's meeting with the um, Putin and, and mothers, I think, is definitely something to watch out for. Um, I'm going to be I'm on the desk again, and I, and I'm going to be um, making sure I'm all as as much as possible all over that one. Um, there's t- a couple of other bits of news which really paint a uh, sort of grim picture of what's going on in Russia. They're saying that car thefts are up by about a third luxury cars. This is driven by a huge demand for spare parts in, in luxury cars and luxury cars themselves. They just, you know, they can't get the imports anymore. Um, just adding to the picture of what's going on in, in Russia. Doctors have said that, um, psychologists have said that people with pain and depression has risen by 50% since mobilization. Um, another sort of indicator of what's going on. Um, and a little smaller thing, um, retailers said that sales of DVD um, drives and, and videos and, and, and discs having, have nearly doubled this year in Russia. And that's a, that's a consequence of Hollywood films not being shown, streaming services not, not being available, etc., so I think, you know, there is an issue of life getting in, in Russia, not only becoming more authoritarian and more dangerous with central mobilization, but also really quite boring. Well, thank you very much, James, for giving us uh, that account of the uh, central uh, Asian states and also some of your reporting looking at Russia specifically. Uh, Dom and Francis, can I come to your final thoughts? Dom Nichols, why don't you go first? Yeah, thanks, David. So final thought, I would just... Um... I just want to bring to your attention Dmitry Peskov, the uh, the Kremlin spokesman. I, I don't often like being uh, you know, just amplifying these these ridiculous comments, but they are so ridiculous that I think this one does need amplifying. He's uh, he was talking about um, how the Ukrainian leadership can uh, can end the suffering and, and stop these uh, stop all these strikes on uh, on the electrical and water stations around uh, around Ukraine and he has said uh, he told reporters this morning uh, quotes there have been no strikes on social targets and there are none special attention is paid to this as for targets that are d- directly or indirectly related to military potential they are accordingly subjected to strikes yeah fine and then he finished off with the leadership of Ukraine has every opportunity to bring the situation back to normal has every opportunity to resolve the situation in such a way as to fulfill the requirements of the Russian side and accordingly end all possible suffering amongst the population I mean it's just it's just idiocy it, they try to give this appearance of calm and measured respectability that they're no in no way irrational that you know all ukraine has to do is just is just give in and do what we want and then the pain will stop i mean this is the language of a bully and an abuser it's the classic look what you're making me do to you it's horrific and i, I you know that this is why i mentioned it i i i hate echoing this guy's comments but we need to just reiterate this the abuse and terrorism that's going on here and though that's that statement says it all and i couldn't let that go un unremarked francis Sterling, what are your final thoughts well yes uh, i mean today is the nine month anniversary of course of putin's invasion back in february we've been covering it almost every day since then and uh, over the time that we've over that time we've seen the confluences of this conflict go go back and forth of course and then this winter as we've signaled for many weeks now will be an immensely challenging period perhaps the most difficult for ukraine since those early days of the war and with that in mind i just wanted to draw attention to 
a single story as part of my final thoughts. We've seen some footage today of where doctors are forced to use batteries and power generators holding torches over the body of a child after a power cut in an operating room. It's pretty harrowing footage and it's just one example of what it means for a state to attack civilian infrastructure and why it's deemed constituting a war crime. And so this is just a taste of what we can expect, I fear, over over the weeks ahead, particularly if these attacks continue on civilian infrastructure and the winter gets increasingly worse. I saw a report today that uh, this is from um, Children of War, which is a website monitoring child casualties, that they now think that more than 400 children have been killed and 323 are still missing since Russia invaded in Ukraine. That's before you even count the, the potentially hundreds of thousands of children that have been forced to leave the country, many of them deported by the Russians themselves to Russia, which, as I say, is a story we're going to look at again. So this is really, really hideous stuff stuff. And I just wanted to end by uh, reflecting on a piece that I'd recommend listeners to look at on our website, which is by Con Coughlin, who's our defence columnist. And he just wanted to look at what are the legal avenues for trying Putin and generals who are involved in these acts. And it's quite a complicated piece, but I'll just try and break down the essence of his argument. So bear with me. So, of course, Putin is calculating that he will never be held accountable because he holds one of the five permanent seats on the UN Security Council and as a consequence will be able to veto any move by the West to establish a war crimes tribunal along the lines of the one that we saw, of course, after um, the wars in Yugoslavia. China too, I think we can expect, would object because they would really resist the establishment of any body that could investigate its own uh, treatment uh, of, of, of the Uyghurs people. So... That's his expectation. But apparently some very interesting work that's being done at the moment as an attempt by lawyers to uh, look into the crimes that were committed during the Syrian civil war and to effectively establish a UN-sponsored tribunal that will be able to act independently of the UN Security Council that will still try and bring these people to account. That is a process that is currently ongoing in the case of Syria, but if it is established, then it would set a precedent, precedent that could be applicable in the case of Ukraine as well. And it's clear that that is the conversations that are taking place at the moment. And just as a final thing on that, a Dutch court earlier this month convicted three Russian security officials of shooting down Malaysia Airlines Flight 17 over Ukraine in July 2014, which of course killed 298 people on board. An absolutely hideous act and some one that no doubt will be reflected on in much more detail in the years ahead as a consequence of what's happened in Ukraine since, because I think you can see it as a, as a warning signal of what was to come. So that has shown that even without UN backing, there are still ways in which Putin and his henchmen could ultimately stand trial for these war crimes. But it will have to be done in a way that has never been done before. So there will be immense challenges, but there are legal avenues. And so, as I say, I recommend that listeners read that piece by Con because it offers a very interesting insights into what is inevitably a very complex legal problem. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast by The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio.
You can also listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And, if you have a moment, do leave a review, as it helps others find the show. To our listeners on YouTube, for reasons beyond our control, there's sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload, so if you do want to hear an episode as soon as possible, it's available on your podcast apps. Please search for Ukraine The Latest on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your preferred app, and check out the Ukraine page on the Telegraph website. As ever, you can get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. We are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, and on Twitter, Jaden Irving. <laughs>